0: So thankful for our church and so thankful for this morning. And uh, especially thankful now we just get to spend time in God's Word. I my heart uh, trembling this morning. Much more than normal. So, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask Him to help us. Holy God, we cry out to You. And Lord, we are desperately in need this morning for You to draw our hearts to You. And to Your Word, to be attentive to You. Lord, we're in need of our faith to be provoked. We're in need to be greatly reminded of the purpose of faith and the power of faith. The centrality of Jesus Christ in the Christian life. So Lord, help us this morning to worship Christ. Lord, help us this morning to be cut to the quick. Help us this morning to do one simple thing to look to Christ and to believe and to live the life that you've called us to live. I ask you, Lord, to calm my own heart and to trust in you. And even during this hour, that my own faith would increase, that I would look to you in due time, knowing that you will indeed open your hand as you open your word and unfold your word to all your people this morning. So we thank you again for what you're going to do. In your name we pray. Amen. I'll you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14, and we're going to be looking this morning at Jesus Christ walking on the water. We're going to be looking at verses 22 through 33, and and normally I would read it, but I want to do this this morning a little differently. I just want to read a few verses, and I want to just kind of give some explanation as we walk through the text, and then after that we'll look at some, uh, some lessons of faith. So let's just begin in Matthew chapter 14, verse 22. Matthew writes, immediately he made that as Christ the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. And after he sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. Now we read previously just beforehand, you can read the story of how Herod had just killed John the Baptist who was Christ's cousin, who was Israel's prophet, the final prophet to pave the way for Christ. He had been beheaded by Herod, and then after that we read that Christ performs a miracle. He feeds 5,000 men, the story tells us, not including the women and children. Perhaps up to 15,000, some say maybe 25,000 people Christ had just fed with a few loaves of bread and a few fish. And during all this time, Christ is ministering to these people and He's preaching the Gospel to them. And He's urging them, telling them that, that Behold, the Kingdom of Heaven is at hand. That the Messiah has come. And yet, after, the, after these men and women see this miracle of Christ, after they see His power, all they want to do is steal Him away and make Him an earthly king. They don't understand the power of the Gospel. They don't understand the message He's preaching. They just want an earthly king. They just want to be delivered from their earthly oppressions. And so in light of this, Christ's heart's burden. His cousin is dead. He's ministering to people. He's exhausted. And so he needs time to pray. And so he sends the crowds away. He gets his disciples in a rowboat. And he sends them out into the sea. And then he takes off and he spends some time alone with the Father in prayer. And we read in verse 23, it says, But the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. And Jesus has been praying. He's been pouring out His heart to the Father. But the disciples have been out in the rowboat, rowing away. They're trying to get to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. The parallel account in Mark 6 says that the boat was now in the middle of the sea. Likewise, the parallel account in John chapter 6 tells us that the disciples had rowed three to four miles out into the Sea of Galilee. Mark tells us that the disciples, they were straining at the oars. Literally, the word means that they were they were torturing themselves with all their might, with all their power, rowing away, trying to get to the other side. Verse 25, And in the fourth watch of the night, He came to them walking on the sea. Now the fourth watch of the night could be anywhere from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. in the morning. Verse 23 told us that Jesus started praying, quote, in the evening, which is around 6 p.m. So what this means is that Jesus has been praying at least for the last nine hours. He's been pouring out His heart to the Father, been praying, which is typical of Christ. If you read through the Gospels, you can study the the prayer life of Christ. And you will see often that Christ eludes Himself, takes Himself away to spend extended hours, sometimes whole nights, in prayer to God. But during this time, as Christ is praying for nine hours, the disciples have been rowing for nine hours. We see that here one man has been wrestling with God in prayer, and that 12 other men have been wrestling with God in his creation. And so these men, these disciples, they're rowing with all their might, they're getting nowhere, and they're exhausted. Now let's be mindful of a couple things here, all right? First of all, the disciples are not in a mastercraft 24-foot jet boat. They're not out wakeboarding. Alright, they're not having a good time. They're struggling away. They're straining every muscle. You can imagine their, their arms are just burning with, with pain. Their hands are probably blistering up. The wind and the, and the waves are crashing upon them. Not to mention it's probably pouring down rain. And these men are exposed and just to a brutal time of the elements. We can only imagine what they were perhaps saying. Nine hours of rowing away, getting nowhere. Probably wondering, what in the world were we thinking? What were we doing listening to Jesus? This man who's been you know, raised on the farm, who's a carpenter, he now tells us to get in the boat. We're fishermen. We know that we shouldn't get in the boat when there's a storm coming. What are we doing out here? And verse 26 says that when the disciples saw Jesus walking on the water, walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost And they cried out in fear. Literally, they were were terrified. Their hearts and minds were stirred up into a panic when they saw this man walking on the water. Let me remind you again this is a a true story. This factually, this literally happened. The disciples literally saw this man walking on the water and they literally cried out, It is a ghost. Now, To be fair to the disciples, all of you and I remember being at home alone, right? Or all of us remember being in our bedroom at home with all the lights off, right? And all of a sudden, you hear some strange noises and you begin to convince yourself that the boogeyman is in the corner, that, you know, there's a murderer under your bed and he's just waiting for your parents to go downstairs and watch TV so he can jump out of the bed and he can smother you with a pillow or whatever, Alright, so you, you hear the creaks, the wind's blowing, your bed's creaking, which means the boogeyman's under it, the house is creaking, you start seeing things with your eyes. Alright, and you begin to, to fear and tremble, okay? That stuff still happens to me, but I, I have Amy to protect me, so everything's okay. Alright, and they start crying out in fear. They start, literally, they're shrieking in terror as they see this ghost. Literally, the Greek says that they saw a, a phantom, a phantasma a phantom a ghoul a spirit from the underworld verse 27 says in the response that but immediately Jesus spoke to them saying take courage it is I do not be afraid at the same time the disciples saw their lord their lord saw them and as soon as our lord saw the terror on their faces and heard the shrieks of their cries he attempts to calm them by saying take courage take courage it is I and we see here this morning the only two words the disciples needed to hear in order to not be afraid. It's Me. He does not tell them to find strength from within, but to find strength from Him. He tells them literally in the Greek, He says, Ego Eimi. He says, I am. The I am is here. Reminiscent of what Yahweh said to Moses in the burning bush. The sovereign God, the eternally existing One is here. Something greater than a mere phantom is here. And there's a sense where their terror and shrieking was somewhat of appropriateness. This is the Christ. This is God incarnate. God in the flesh, walking on the water, walking directly towards them in His infinite and absolute holiness. They're trembling for the wrong reasons. They're trembling not because it's God walking towards them. They're trembling because they think they see a ghost. But Christ says, take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. Verse 28, Peter says to Him, Lord, if it is You, command me to come to You on the water. Command me to come to You on the water. And here the Apostle Peter, he is the first one to speak forth from his quivering lips and to express at least some faith. Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you. Let's be mindful again, even trying to imagine the sight of Jesus Christ walking on water. Alright, you guys maybe saw Eugene Zanga a few, few months ago. This Some goofy guy, some, some scientist saying, oh, there was the lake was frozen and there was floating chunks of ice and Jesus was stepping on these chunks of ice and it wasn't really a miracle. Well, this guy forgets that there's, you know, who knows how many mile an hour winds blowing. Who knows how massive these waves are, are walking and, and, and rising up. And here's Jesus Christ walking on, on, on crashing waves, walking on in the midst of blowing winds. And He's walking towards the disciples. And Peter says, Lord, if it's You, let me come to You. And Christ says in verse 28, Come, come. And Peter got out of the boat and he walked on the water. And he came to Jesus. Peter is the one who has at least an inkling of faith. Why? Because he believed the words of Christ. And though he will soon lose sight of Him, he does trust in Him and does what is impossible. He walks on the water. Peter doesn't merely want Christ to come to them, to get into the boat with them. He wants to see for himself the power of Christ. It is one thing for Christ to be God. It is one thing for Christ to be all-powerful and to be perfect in and of Himself. But it is quite another thing for Christ to make one who is a doubter and a sinner to do what is impossible. And Peter wants to experience that for himself. Peter knows that if Christ can make him walk on the water, that Christ can make him do anything. So Peter wants to do the impossible, not just to come to Jesus, but to come to Jesus in a supernatural way. Now perhaps Peter was the first to open his mouth because he wanted to be the first sinner to walk on the water. Perhaps he wanted to to one-up his brothers. Perhaps he thinks that it is coming to Jesus by walking on water that is so tremendous. But what is really supernatural here is that Peter is walking towards God. That is what is supernatural. In verse 29 reads, But seeing the wind, he became frightened. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me! Fallen humanity mixed with faith. We cannot doubt that Peter had faith for two reasons. First, is because Peter was walking on water. This was faith in action. He trusted in Christ. He stepped out to do the impossible, though his his faith was quickly shaken. And this Peter's Peter's thinking here is, I see it to be somewhat ironic. That he is walking towards God. He is walking towards God on water. And by all means, he should have been walking on water, going quickly the other direction. Fleeing from the presence of God. Fleeing from the presence of the Holy One. And yet instead, he's walking on water, he's walking towards Christ, he's walking towards God. And what does he do? He looks at some waves, and he gets afraid. Again, his fear is for the wrong reasons. And I know that these are not wimpy breakers. The threat of death is looming. But if Peter's eyes would have been truly open to see who he was walking towards... He would have gladly sunk in the sea. He would have gladly cried out for the waves to crash over him and pull him down into oblivion to seek safety from the presence of the living God. But instead of fearing God, he fears the wind. He fears the waves. But Peter had faith for two reasons. First, because he walked on water. But second of all, because Christ tells him, in verse 31, Immediately, Christ stretched out His hand and took hold of him and said to him, You have little faith. Why did you doubt? We know that Peter had faith because Christ tells Peter He had faith. Jesus tells him, You have little faith. He doesn't say you have no faith or that you are entirely lacking in faith. He says you have faith, but it is very small. Jesus does not commend him for this kind of faith He has, but still He acknowledges that there is some faith. Verse 32, When he got into the boat, the wind stopped. And those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, You are certainly God's Son. The reality of everything that had just happened, the reality of what they had just finally seen Christ do, unfolded to them what kind of man this really was. Which brings us to uh, the title of this sermon this morning. I titled this sermon, Christ, the Purpose and Power of Faith. Christ, the Purpose and the Power of Faith. This story is living and it is demanding and it is binding and it elicits a hearty response from you and I this morning. A response that goes beyond the nodding of the head, the clapping of hands, or the shouting of an Amen, or the closing of prayer. But it elicits response from you and I. It evokes our faith this morning. And so for the rest of our time, I want to do this. I want to give you seven reasons why, seven reasons how, Jesus Christ is and must be the purpose of our faith and the power of our faith. Seven reasons why Christ is the purpose and the power of faith. Number one, because faith beholds Christ for who He is. Faith beholds Christ for for who He is. In Matthew 8, 23, we see a very similar setting where the disciples and Jesus are in a boat in a storm. Christ is exhausted from, from ministering, from serving, and He's sleeping in the bow of the boat. He is so fast asleep that though this crashing storm is threatening to take the disciples under, He does not wake up. And these burly fishermen are so concerned that death awaits them to go. And they shake up Christ and wake Him and say, Christ, we're perishing. And He gets up and He rebukes the wind and the waves and calms the sea. And the disciples respond in in Matthew 8, 27 and say, What kind of man is this? What kind of man is this? That is the key question. What kind of man is this? What is the nature of this man? What category does this kind of man fit under? There is a reason we must understand this lesson before we move on. Because every single person in this room has faith in something. Faith is merely belief. It is an assent or a decision to trust something or someone. And that faith is only as good as the object it rests in. Do you understand that? Faith is only as good as the object in which it rests and trusts in. Verse 25 tells us that He is the kind of man that walks on water. That He is the kind of man who reckons Himself to be the I Am. He is the kind of man who goes after His sheep. He comes to them in their distress. He comes to them in their need. He is the kind of man who alone can give faith. Who alone can say, Peter, come to me and walk on the water. It is Christ who Peter begins to move towards. It is Christ who enables Peter to walk by faith, to walk on water. It is Christ to whom Peter cries out when he is sinking, Lord, save me. It is Christ who does not merely speak words to Peter. Peter, float, but Christ extends his own arm, his own hand to rescue his friend from drowning. And when Christ and Peter got back into the boat, the disciples did not begin congratulating Peter. They did not begin saying, Peter, do you know what you just did? Do you know that you walked on water? You're the first sinner to ever walk on water. No. The disciples worshipped Christ. And they said, you are certainly God's son. You are certainly God's son. That is the kind of man you are. You are the son of God. And that is the point of faith. That is the purpose of faith, to behold the deity of Christ, to behold the power of Christ, and to worship Christ for who He is. The point of this narrative this morning is not faith. The point of this narrative is that Jesus is the Son of God. The point of this narrative is not faith, it is is about the object of faith. Faith is not concerned merely with what we accomplish, but why we accomplish it. Faith demands that mighty things be done because faith is in the object of one who does mighty things. Faith demands a mighty obedience because we have a mighty God. Faith demands that you walk on water because you are putting your trust in one who can do all things. Do you see that? Listen, Jesus did not rebuke Peter because he was sinking. Jesus rebuked Peter because he took his eyes off Christ. Jesus rebuked Peter because he doubted Jesus was the Son of God. That is why Peter was seeking and that is why Jesus rebukes him. Jesus Christ must be this morning the purpose and the power of our faith. But secondly, the second reason is that faith in Christ frees you from fear. Faith in Christ frees you from fear. The disciples saw a ghost. They were terrified. Peter begins drowning and sinking. He cries out, Lord, save me. Now, this point this morning is for all of you here. But I want to say I specifically you know, thought of this in mind with the women here, with the women of our church, with the sisters in this room. I know that there are certain things that are particular to men in their struggles. And likewise, I know that there are particular things that, that women struggle more with. And that fear and anxiousness is one of them. I know that because I have a wife and she tells me these things and I know her. That fear and anxiousness is something that women are prone prone to, to be absorbed in. What if my husband dies? What if we don't have enough food to eat? What if no one will marry me? What if I die a virgin? What if my child is kidnapped? What if my plane crashes? What if I flunk the bar? What if I can't have children? What if my husband loses his job? What if I get in a car accident? What if my children get kidnapped? What if my son or daughter never repents and gets saved? There's all these things that are crushing all the wind and the waves of the world, crushing upon your heart and upon your mind. Seeking to instill fear in you. Sisters, I want to remind you this morning. Unbelievers... The unbeliever has every reason to live in infinite, absolute fear. A fear that would bring him to a catatonic state. But you have no reason this morning to be anxious for anything. You have no reason to doubt or fear or be anxious for any situation or circumstance in any part of your life. Because faith in Christ slays fear. Faith in Christ is the dragon slayer of fear. It strikes down all your fears because it finds security in the Good Shepherd. The Good Shepherd lays down His life for the sheep and promises that no harm will befall you. So you cannot have Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and still fear the problems of this world. You cannot have faith in Christ and still fear your life. It's like... It's like being protected from nuclear war in a nuclear bomb shelter and being afraid of a firecracker. Jesus Christ has so secured you. He has so delivered you from the flames of hell. He has delivered you from eternal condemnation for all of eternity. You will never have to face any, any fear of hell. Therefore, you can trust that Jesus Christ will, rest, he will deliver you from a temporal trial from a mere firecracker. Women, I encourage you this morning, if you are fearing this morning, if you fear for your future, if you are afraid of your life, if you are anxious for any single thing, the antidote is not anything else but to turn to Christ. Fear is fixed by focusing on Christ. Hebrews 13.5 I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Philippians four 4.6 Be anxious for nothing. Why? Because Christ will guard your hearts and your minds. Psalm 27.1 The Lord is my light, my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is my defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? Fear is fixed by a focus. A focus on Christ. Thirdly Faith in Christ must equal the power of Christ. Faith in Christ must equal the power of Christ. The amount of trust you place upon someone should be based upon how trustworthy that person is. Let me say that again. The amount of trust you place upon someone should be based upon how trustworthy that person is. Alright, you guys can understand this simply. Alright, let's say... uh, I'm hiking with my family, and we fall into a, a deep crevasse, and, uh, you know, just happens to be a hundred foot rope hanging out there, I don't know why, but... and Lydia's with us, and I put Lydia on my shoulders, alright, I put Lydia on my shoulders, and I begin to uh, climb up this rope. Now, Lydia knows that she has her arms around Daddy, and she's probably afraid. We start climbing. Or about halfway up, she's looking down. She sees 50 feet below of sheer ice and rocks, and she is somewhat trembling. But she knows, you know, that you know, Daddy likes to climb, and he can probably handle this ascent. So he's climbing away. You know, he's pumping away, and by the grace of God, he gets to the top. And Lydia says, "Yeah, I was scared, but I knew I could trust Daddy, right? But now I have to go back down, and now I have to get Amy, right? My wife's nine months pregnant." Right? A week and a half, we're going to have another child. She puts her arms around me, and I start, I start pulling up. Now my wife, she starts fearing. And she starts thinking to herself, Amy, this is not a good idea. I should not be trusting my husband in this way. And you know what? Her doubt, her lack of faith, it would be right. Because her faith, her faith should only match the object in which she is trusting. There is no way I can climb a hundred foot rope with my nine-month pregnant wife. We're going to get ten feet and we're going to crash. And we're going to burn. Faith must match the object that it is trusting in. It must equal its power. Therefore, faith in Christ must equal the power of Christ. And so we see here again why Peter sunk. Peter's lack of faith is not just an expression of his immaturity. It is a reflection of his Christology. It is a reflection of his Christology. Peter's Christ is a little Christ. Peter is saying before Christ himself, I don't believe that you are all trustworthy. And that was the real problem. Let me be blunt here. Peter sunk because his Christology stunk. Alright? That rhymes. <laughs> if you are sinking this morning, can you have one issue. If you're sinking this morning, you have one issue. Your Christ, the Christ you have, the Christ you worship, He is an idol. He is not the Christ of the Bible. He is a miniaturized Jesus. He is a Shetland pony Jesus. He is a Jesus who is only as big as your faith, rather than having a faith that is as big as Jesus. Now, I understand this morning that there are pools of doubt in every single one of your hearts, mine included. Mine included. There are pools of doubt, there are waves, there are wind. We are a multitude of saints this morning, all of us, who are in some ways, we are sinking. We are all in the sea of waves and of turmoil, and yet in the middle of all this is Jesus Christ walking upon the water. He walks upon the surface, unscathed by your waves, unscathed by your problems, unscathed by your doubt, unscathed by my fear. But we are not sinking because our problems are too big. We are sinking because our Christ is too small. Saints, this morning, if you will but reach out and fix your gaze upon Him, if you will refix your focus, if you will shout to Him with the cry, Lord, I am sinking, save me, the God-man with but two arms is able to pull out 200. He is able to pull out an entirely perishing world with His own two arms. He is able to rescue all those who will look to Him and say, Christ, my faith is weak, but you are strong. Faith in Christ must equal the power of Christ. Fourthly, obedience requires faith. Simply, obedience requires faith. Though Peter was willing at the beginning, it was Christ who really told him to obey. And here's an aspect of obedience. Obedience requires faith because Christ requires us to do the impossible. Let me say that again. Obedience requires faith because because Christ requires us to do what is impossible. If obedience at times did not seem impossible, there would be no need for faith. Faith. You see, Christ has every right to ask you to do the impossible because He has promised you all the power to do what you cannot possibly do without Him. You are to do the unthinkable and to live out the unlivable because the object of your faith is the Almighty Jesus Christ. Walking on water is impossible outside of Him, but with eyes fixed upon Christ, His divine enablement will allow you and must cause you to live by faith. Faith in Christ cannot be dead if you profess faith in Christ and have no obedience, if you profess faith in Christ but have no power, if you are still living as a man enslaved to sin, it is because you worship a dead Christ. You worship a Christ made in your own image. You worship a Christ who is merely a story. You worship a Christ who is merely of religion handed down to you by your parents or forced upon you by tradition. If you keep believing in that Christ, you'll believe yourself straight down in the pit of hell where you'll believe that with all the other demons who believe and tremble. Because saving faith in Christ does exactly that. It saves. Saving faith in Christ empowers. It causes humdrum people with ho-hum lives to trade in all the goods of the world for a life of faith and obedience which results in eternal joy in Jesus Christ. That is what saving faith does. Now, let me say this as an addendum. I'm not saying that you will not struggle. I am not saying that when you trust in Christ, that the waves will subside, that the wind will cease, and that all will be calm, and you will walk across the water unscathed. On the contrary, it is the reality of the waves. It is the reality of the hardships of life. It is the reality of the, the difficulty of the Christian life that causes us to to need to put our faith in Christ and to need to trust in Him. But obedience requires faith. Obedience requires faith. I want to make this a little more clear. At least in that faith demands obedience. And let me illustrate how this works. This is a more particular way. Alright, during OC team, uh, we did door-to-door, right? It was the least desirous part of our ministry, at least for me, I think for, for most everyone else. Door-to-door evangelism, right? Low on the totem pole. Give me a car wash any day, no problem. Alright, so we go door-to-door, we're knocking on doors. I, I tell you again, every single person was trembling. Every single person was asking for God, Lord, grant to me boldness. Lord, grant... That was their mantra. Lord, grant to me boldness. Grant to me... I don't want to knock on this door. I don't want to get cussed at. I don't want to get yelled at. I don't want to get screamed at. I don't want to get punched. You know, Lord, give me someone whose heart is tender. You know, Lord, grant to me boldness. Everyone was praying that. Now, this is what happens: after everybody prayed that prayer, not one single person sat down on the curb and waited for a bolt of lightning. See, that is not how prayer works. That is not how faith works. Faith requires obedience, and obedience requires faith. The prayer of faith is the commitment to obedience. Do you understand that? The prayer of faith is the commitment to obedience. This is what James is talking about in James chapter 1, 5, and 6. He says, But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. See, when you are asking in prayer, you need to be mindful of who you're asking. You are asking the omnipotent God of the universe who can give you whatever He wants, whenever He wants, at any time He wants. That is why Jesus can say in John 15:7 and 8 that God will answer. And why John can write in 1 John 5, 14 and 15 that He will answer. But if you ask and fail to do, you are a doubter of the Most High God. That is why I say again that a prayer of faith is a commitment to greater obedience. If you pray for boldness, it means that you have to share the gospel. Boldness does not come sitting on the curb waiting for a flash of lightning. Boldness comes when you open your mouth and you begin to speak the gospel. Right? When you say, Christ, grant to me uh, an open door at work with my coworkers," It does not mean that you sit around and you wait for your co-worker to walk up and say, Hey, can you tell me this morning how I can get saved? No, it means that you walk to the coffee place, you walk to the water cooler, and you say, Hey, can I talk to you about something? You know, you walk up and you're trembling and you're fearing and you say, God, grant to me boldness, please. And in faith, you open your lips and you share the gospel. God, I'm, I'm lacking in obedience to my parents. God, help me to obey. Help me to respect my parents. And that prayer of faith is answered when the next time your parents say, do this and do that, and you say, yes, I will do it. And you leave and say, God, thank you for granting me obedience. Or wise, when you struggle with submitting to your husband, and you're agitated by him, and agitated by his laziness, and you say, Lord, help me to be a submissive wife. That means the next time when your husband agitates you, that you respond by faith, and do what you have prayed, and believe that God has committed to you. That is what the, commitment to, to, that is what the prayer of faith means. It means a commitment to greater obedience. Another little addendum, alright? I'm, I'm somewhat done with that point. But let me give a very, very specific application to you young single brothers out here, alright? This is for you. You guys guys can put your fingers in your ears. Brothers, you can listen. Alright, if you pray for a wife, it means that you're committing to obedience by pursuing one of these godly single ladies, alright? They're sitting right over here. You can come over here, alright? If you're praying for a wife, it means that you're committing to pursue a wife, alright? The prayer of faith is a prayer of action. So here's my exhortation. Stop praying for a wife and then waiting for one to appear in your mailbox. Alright? All right, let's move on. Alright. Fifthly, faith must rest fully in Christ. Faith must rest fully in Christ. This is somewhat similar to some previous ones. But faith must rest fully in Christ. The depth of Peter's faith could not only be manifested or could only be manifested and tested by stepping out of the boat. Right? So Peter's faith, it couldn't be manifested by sitting in the boat. It had to be manifested by his action. It had to be manifested, we talked about the last point, had to be manifested by his obedience. In fact, one does not know what kind of faith he has until what? Until it's tested. Tests and trials are necessary. Peter's faith was tested and it was found lacking, and it was in this test that Peter began to sink. It is well known that, that lifeguards, when they see a drowning person, they will swim out to him. And they will come upon this, this poor young soul that is drowning away in the middle of the ocean. He is flapping. He is flailing. He is, he is screaming here and there until the water fills his lungs, until he can scream no more. And he is, he is flapping and flailing. And the danger is that if the lifeguard moves in too quickly, that man will flap and flail and he will take them both down. And so the lifeguard, what he does is he waits until that man realizes that there is absolutely nothing that he can do to save his life. The lifeguard will wait until that man is about to take his last breath, until he has no more strength to flail, he has no more strength to try to swim, and he begins to go under. And it is that time when the lifeguard moves in, and he lays hold of that person, and he takes him to the shore. And that is how Christ works at times. As you are in your struggles, and you are in your trials, and you are trying to swim in your own strength, and you are drowning, and your lungs are filled with salt water, and you are looking to this person to help you, or you are looking to that person to help you, or you are looking to food, or you are looking to money, or you are looking to entertainment, you are looking to all the things that surround your life, and you are looking for that thing to save you, but it will not save you. And you are going down, and it is until you have taken your last gulp, it is when your head is about to finally go under, that Christ then reaches out and says, you a little faith. Why did you turn your gaze away from me? Fix your eyes upon me. Faith must be in Christ alone, not because the Christian life is hard, but because the Christian life is impossible. See, there is no one else that can save you from your sin. If you're an unbeliever, there is no one else that can save you from your sin this morning. If you are a Christian, there is no one else who can bring you to sanctification. There is no one else who can complete the work which was started by Christ. Christ. It is impossible to have that which was begun by faith and and the all-sufficient supremacy of Christ to ever be aided by any human strength or might. Saving faith begins as saving faith and ends as saving faith. It is not initiated by Christ and then helped along by you or by me. Christ does it all. He enables it all. He provides all the strength necessary to walk on water and do what is absolutely impossible. And I will tell you again that my own gaze has often moved away from Christ. That my own, my own focus is often moved away. Seminary. Orange County team. Nine month pregnant wife, another child on the way. Food, finances, preaching, CCF, check missions. They begin to cause fear in my heart. And I have fallen in many ways myself. And I need to fix my own gaze back upon Christ who rescued my soul. Looking at Christ and keeping your focus on Him does not mean the waves go away. It does not mean the tempest and the storm will cease. On the contrary, looking at Christ means that you will be able to walk even in the midst of the wind and even in the midst of the storm. If you will keep Christ as the purpose and power of your faith, you will stand up in your boat if you will keep Christ as the purpose and the power of your faith, the winds will continue to come, the waves will continue to crash. In fact, the waves will begin to to fill up your boat. But you will stand in your boat and you will look at Christ. And the water will begin to fill it up so much that your boat will begin to sink. But you will continue to look upon Christ. And become so full of water will your boat be that it will begin to go under the water. And it will leave you But if you keep your faith fixed upon Christ, you will look down and see that though the boat is gone, though everything under you has gone, you are walking on water. If you will keep your faith, you will keep your gaze fixed upon Christ, you will do what cannot possibly be done apart from Him. Sixthly, true faith in Christ grows. When Peter and the rest of the disciples finally saw who this man was, they worshipped him. They worshipped him. When their faith increased and their vision of who Christ was came about, they worshipped him. Now I know there are some of you here this morning, you are struggling with the same sins, that your life has moved a little forward in regards to godliness. You are aware of your sins. You are broken by it. You weep over it. You weep as if Esau seeking for repentance, but you cannot find it. but I want to tell you this morning why you have not changed and why you have not found it. It is because you have not looked to Christ. It is because you look in the wrong place. It is because you look inward or outward instead of upward. Can you imagine if Christ would have allowed Peter to continue walking on water even though he took his eyes off of him? Can you imagine what would have happened or what would happen if God allowed you and I to defeat our sin without enlarging our view of Christ? Can you imagine if God allowed us to grow in godliness and in holiness and in sanctification without growing in our love and our relationship with Christ? It would defeat the whole purpose of faith. We would swell up with pride. We would explode with pride because we would say, look what! Look at me, rather than saying, look at what Christ has done. Church, you will not personally change until your doctrine of Christ changes. Perhaps you are at present evangelicals in profession but perhaps you are a Jehovah's Witness at heart. You confess that Jesus Christ is God, but live as if He were only a God. Stop exegeting Christ through your flesh. Stop allowing your flesh to define for you who Jesus is. Believe with your heart and your mind and your soul what the Bible says that Jesus is and what the Bible says that Jesus is able to do. That is everything. He is all you need. He is enough for 10 billion million people. He is enough for you. He is able to accomplish everything that He has began in you. True faith in Christ will grow when it is fixed solely upon Him. Your sins will be conquered. Your lusts will be destroyed when your focus is upon Christ. Seventhly, and lastly, true faith's purpose is worship. True faith's purpose is worship. When they saw who Christ was, they worshipped Him. When they saw who Christ was, they worshipped Him. When they saw the Lord Jesus for who He was, their sails were filled with the wind of the Spirit and they worshipped Christ. Now this morning, there are some of you in this morning, where well, your worship for the Lord is in the doldrums. Right? A doldrum is a term early sailors used for a certain sailing condition where there was nothing for days on end. It was, when a, it was when a ship found itself in the midst of the ocean, and there was no wind, and there was no waves, there was no movement. And the doldrums is specifically in a, in a climate where it's hot and where it's muggy, and the ship cannot move. And the men, they just sit there for days, sometimes weeks, sometimes months. There are stories where ships have been caught in the doldrums for so long that the entire crew perished. And so it is with some of our faith this morning that our worship of Christ, our faith in Christ, is in the doldrums. Your faith is dying from exposure to the heat. Your soul is withering up as it is surrounded by millions of gallons of undrinkable salt water. The wind of change will be found in only one source. Fresh water will come from only one rock. New wind will only be blown in by the mouth of the One who saved you in order that you might be the blazing glory of Christ. That you might look to Him Oh, that you would see this morning that you are sinking and that you would look up to one place again. That you would look to Christ. That you would see that He has saved you. That you might worship Him. Christ is what will refresh your hearts. Christ is what will invigorate you. Christ is what will fill you with passion to pour out your soul before Him. Three applications. First, if you're not a real believer... Or perhaps if you think you are and your faith is not resting in Christ, perhaps you're just this morning a passenger in our boat, or perhaps your own boat is already sinking and you're drowning, be mindful that it's perfect timing. That Christ rescues those who are drowning. Christ rescues those that see that they're going under. If you will this morning but look to Christ, if you will extend and cry to Him, Lord, save me, I am perishing He will not flinch. He will not wait for a second. He will, like a flash of lightning, extend His arm to you and rescue you. If you are a believer this morning, simply do this. Simply refresh your relationship with Christ. Refresh your relationship with Christ. You see, every relationship you have in the world will come to an end. Someday you will no longer be a son. Someday you will no longer be a friend. You will no longer be a daughter. You will no longer be a sister or a brother or a husband or a wife or a mother or a father. All relationships in this world will end but one. Your relationship with Christ. Invest in your relationship with Christ. Pursue Him. Learn of Him. Love Him. Worship Him. Do whatever you must to grow your relationship with Christ. And so third, let me give you just a very practical means. Perhaps there's many, but I just... Quickly, just end. Just for a while, just for a while, stop reading Christian books about you. Right? Stop reading Christian books about lust. Stop reading Christian books about dating, about Christian living. Stop reading books about your Christian life and read books about Jesus Christ. Read MacLeod's The Person of Christ or Benjamin Warfield's The Person and Work of Christ or Peter Lewis' The Glory of Christ or John Stott's The Cross of Christ or John Owens' The Glory of Christ. Read something about Christ that will cause your faith to increase in love for Christ. Reread the Gospels over and over again. Read the Gospel of Matthew and Luke and Mark and John and read them all again. So often we need to remind ourselves that Christ did not die just to save us from hell or to save us from sin, but rather He died in order to draw us to Him that we might be His and He might be ours. Now, all those books on Christian living are good, but they all have one end, to know and love Christ. So be encouraged this morning. Saints, be reminded this morning that Jesus Christ, He is the purpose of faith. That Jesus Christ, He is the power of your faith. And if you will look to Him, you will be reminded of those things this morning and your faith will increase. Father, we thank You so much for Your faithfulness. We thank You so much for Your goodness and for Your loving kindness. Lord, this morning we confess that we often worship a miniature Christ. We worship a Christ made in our own image. A Christ who is not our powerful Lord. And our lives prove it. Our sinkings and our strugglings and our failures... They prove that we are not trusting in You. That is why in Heaven there will be no more sin because our faith will be sight. It will be perfected. But in this life, Lord, we need the constant reminder to fix our gaze upon You, the author and perfecter of what You have begun. So, Lord, I cry to You, encourage us this morning that You would encourage the faint-hearted, that You would help the weak, that You might even admonish the unruly through Your Word. And that all men and women, all brothers and sisters would leave this morning with new faith focused upon the freshness of Christ. We thank You again for Your goodness. In Your name we pray. Amen.